0: The medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. East Asian medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast. ...that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of East Asian medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese and other East Asian medicines. Listen into to these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. We are trained to know a lot about a person from looking and touching. And while we have our 10 questions or other interviewing checklists, there's a lot that can come from an interview and in relationship with the patient that can help us to better understand them and hopefully be of service to them as well. On the other end of the microphone today, I've got Margot Rossi. I've known Margot for as long as I've known about acupuncture because Margot was the first person to ever put an acupuncture needle into me. We talk from time to time about our practices, and one of the reoccurring topics that comes up is about the kinds of connections that get created in our clinic and with our patients that allows us to better understand our patients from their own point of view. In today's discussion, we are circling around how the connection with our patients and the information we get from our exchanges with them can help to inform our clinical eye and hand. I always enjoy my conversations with Margot, and I once tried to interview her for Everyday Acupuncture a few years ago, but she turned the microphone back on me at that time. What can I say? That's Margot for you. It's episode 15, by the way, if you're interested. Just pop over to Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. You can listen to it. Anyway, today, I'm delighted to be sitting down with a cup of tea across the space of 12 time zones with Margot, and sharing our conversation with you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit youfastneedles.com slash Geological to learn how.
1: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect pumpsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit mayway.com. This season and every season, trust me Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
0: I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, The Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to janeapp switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Cheological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Let's see what we get into here today. Margot, welcome to GEOLOGICAL.
2: Hi, Michael Max in Taiwan.
0: Yeah, this, this show is coming to you live on tape from Taiwan. Tainan, Taiwan, actually. Lower part of the island. So, I, you know, you might hear some background scooters and stuff like that. I'm, I've tried to get into a quiet place, but uh, it's Taiwan, baby.
2: Yeah, over here you'll just hear some backyard chickens. But...
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's all I got for you.
0: All right. Well, I've got Margot Rossi with me here today. And I've known Margot for as long as I've known about acupuncture because Margot Rossi was actually the first person to ever stick an acupuncture needle into me like, I don't know, 25, 26 years ago?
2: Yeah. I think that's my only claim to fame, Michael.
0: What? Seriously? That you stuck an acupuncture needle yeah. in me? <laughs> <laughs> or that you've been doing it for as long as you've been
2: doing it? No, no. That, you, that, I, that I treated you. You're a In my book, you're a famous person, so
0: you're a celebrity. In my book, you're the famous person. That's why you're on the show. Yay. (laughs) You know, one, one of the things I really remember from long ago is, you know, not just getting treated with needles and such, but the way that I was listened to, attended to, cared for, the way that I was spoken to, the way that I was invited into a conversation about you know, not just my health problem, but who I was. And so one of the things I, I wanted to talk with you about today is, is because, I, I mean, that was something that's been a part of acupuncture for me from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And I always think about the way that you used, let's call it the relationship, the connection with the patient as a way of getting information yeah, so that you knew how to help, you know? I mean, we learn about tongue. We learn about pulse. Especially here in Asia, if someone finds out that you're a Chinese medicine practitioner, they stick their wrist out, (laughs) like, you know, tell me who I am, which is, you know, I mean, there's a lot that we can get, but I want to talk with you about what you get from being with someone.
2: Well, I think that is the most nourishing aspect of the work that we do, for me, is that moment of being in relationship with someone. You know, I'm not a great pulse diagnostician. I'm happy to admit that. And I admire my colleagues who are really good at that. Um, I've got, you know, all those diagnostic skills. I understand them and I understand the strategies of our medicine pretty well. And that's a great framework to have. Uh, But I definitely rely the most in my practice, on my relationship that I have with my patient during that interview process. That's probably where I get the lion's share of information. Um, My treatment will come to me in that moment. I'll know exactly what I want to do. And then when I get into the treatment room with the patient, I most often do check the pulse. I do look at the tongue. I often do horror diagnosis as well. But sometimes I don't sometimes I just let all that go and just go with what came to me in the interview process. And that's probably the thing I most passionately like to share with acupuncture students. I don't know if you know this, but um, since 2004, I was teaching at Taoist Traditions College of uh, Chinese Medical Arts in Asheville, North Carolina. And I started there when the school started and I taught everything. I taught Chinese medicine theory. I taught five elements. I taught horror diagnosis. Um, uh, The main thing that they kept calling me back for was to teach needling techniques and the adjunct techniques, which of course is profound. (laughs) That's a profound study to teach someone else how to do. Uh, So, what I started sneaking into that class with needling techniques, you know, talking about the ling shu and talking about the the comport of the practitioner, the relationship that you're having with the needle, inserting the needle, etc. And then, of course, all the clean needle technique that goes along with that and the anatomy and the uh, function and indication of the points. And then, you know, the technique that you're actually using on the needle lifting and thrusting if you're working on the divergent channels here's the technique if you're working on the sinew channels here's the technique etc uh but what i started sneaking into that
0: yeah. <laughs> was
2: the the treasure and the preciousness of creating a relationship with your patient and of course for students that's the most terrifying part of working with someone you know in those first couple of years is how do you sit in a room with someone and nurture this intimacy. How do you know when not to go forward in that? How do you even establish rapport with someone? We don't have, we don't learn those skills in school. It's just not something that we get in America. Is how to build rapport with someone, unless you take, uh, you know, a neurolinguistic programming course. You won't. We just don't learn that stuff.
0: Or, or maybe unless you learn psychotherapy yeah. or, you know, those particular, or, you know, even really good sales training.
2: Well, they, they use neurolinguistic programming for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's just part of the way humans naturally, effectively communicate, right?
2: Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's If you're paying attention, you don't need to have those classes, you know, that we get most in rapport with people with whom we feel like we're similar. You know, if there's something familiar, yeah, if you're paying attention. So
0: So, what do you tell us about paying attention? <laughs> <laughs> uh, evil laugh. I hear your evil laugh.
2: <laughs> well, can I back up a little bit and just um, – because mm-hmm. I – again, just as I'm not – I don't pride myself on being a great pulse diagnostician. Uh, I'm not a scholar either and though I though I certainly have read some chapters out of the Ling Shu and the Su Wen I can't say that I know these things but um there are there are a couple of chapters out of the Dao De Ching that mm. speak to this and certainly in the Su Wen and the Ling Shu uh, they talk about this importance of the relationship between the practitioner and the patient as being the key to your diagnosis, to understanding what's happening for this other person. And of course, that influences your treatment. But you know how there's that saying, the Tao begot the one and the one... Oh, it's how
0: how it starts.
2: Yeah. The one begot the two and then the two begot the three and the three begot the 10,000 things.
0: Yeah, the three caused all the mischief.
2: Yeah. Well, of course, when I first studied that, I thought it was kind of like the um, the Tootsie Roll pop, like how many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll? <laughs> you know, one, two, three, you know, the world may never know. I just thought they kind of gave up. <laughs> you know, the sages just gave up at three and said, okay, and then everything else comes after that. But
0: Right, whenever.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but if you think about it, you've got the Tao. And then you have the yin and the yang, just like mm-hmm. you, heaven and earth, patient, practitioner. And then between them is created this other thing, this third thing. And that third thing, of course, is the relationship that you have. <sighs> so, yeah. and from that relationship, you know, if you can really connect with someone, the possibilities are. I'm assuming infinite of where you can go together, what you can do, how things can change, what you can create from that, that triad of me, you, and our relationship. So when we were first learning that, that just caught me on fire, like, oh, that's really what it's about. Is It really, has nothing to do with uh, my diagnosis. It has nothing to do with where I put the needle. It has nothing to do with my technique. It has everything to do with my relationship the, or our relationship that we're creating together. And when I was working with you, Michael, I think I shared this with you once upon a time when we were having a conversation that I apologized to my supervisor in student clinic because I was always running late because I was talking to my patients <laughs> one day I came out of the room and it was with you. You had had um, something profound happened while you were having the treatment and it touched you deeply and it was unsettling. And so we talked for a while. And when I came out of the room, I apologized to my supervisor and he said, no, this this is a cornerstone of Chinese medicine. Of course, this was Dr. Yang. I don't know if you remember him. To him, that was paramount. That relationship that talking to the talking with the patient, listening and responding was key. So he didn't he didn't mind at all that I was late. It was and that was a real pivotal moment for me because I was so excited about this idea of I think Lonnie, oh my gosh, I'm gonna say something in Chinese now. <laughs> and you're in Taiwan. I think Lonnie Jarrett calls it the, the Chong Chi. The, um that's what's happening between the practitioner and the patient that relationship is like an infusion of tea leaves and water so you you have the water and you have the tea leaf and then you have this infusion and you get the tea from that which of course is very therapeutic and delicious and delicious. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it it so, you know, and it, and it speaks to kind of an alchemical thing too. I mean, when you talk about making tea, you've got water, you've got fire, you've got heat, you've got you know, something melding with something else.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and um coming back since you mentioned the water. That's that was another that was another piece out of the Dowditching that really caught me. I think chapter 8 Speaks about t- being like water, which is something um, that my beloved teacher Jeffrey Yuen off- often talks about is to be like water, that that's the ultimate because water can go into any space and it goes where most people might not want to go. And to me, that's mm-hmm. that's also what we want to do in this relationship in the clinic is to be able to infuse into places that may be unconscious for our patients, maybe even... Oh, my
0: God, ourselves. they're often really unconscious. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, so that ability... It,
0: it might be partly why they're there. There's this thing that they're not attending to, and now they've got these symptoms.
2: Yes. And, of course, we can't solve a problem at the same level of the problem. So if, if something is going on the subconscious and we don't have any awareness of it, we really are kind of limited in changing it. I might be able to, uh, you know, give an herbal formula or do a treatment, um, but it's not until that issue becomes, bubbles up into consciousness, I think that it can really start to shift, that that person will actually start to change their lifestyle or start to change their beliefs or their thoughts or their attitude or the things that really are going to make that transformation happen. So, being able to communicate with that subconscious is really key. And we can do that through certain skills, and that's what I like to share with my students. Or what are those rapport building skills that you can take into clinic and use so that you can create a link between yourself and the consciousness and the subconscious of your patient. And then once you go there, once you, once you move like water into those places, then you can draw things out so that they can have an awareness of them and things can really start to change. Does that make sense? It
0: yes. <laughs> yes. And, and and I the th- way that you're talking about water seeping into the cracks and going to the lowest levels and, you know, seeping down, down, down. I find this happens in clinic a lot. People come in with something and they're not even sure they should say something about it. Yeah. And sometimes, actually, they don't want to say anything about it. They're hoping they can get by without doing so, right? So there's that element of respect that sometimes we have to give people that they're not ready to say something. Yes. But there's areas of life this is my experience as well, both personal and, and in clinic, where if we can inhabit with some awareness what's happening in our life, we can do something about that.
2: Yes, absolutely. And even, and even if it's
0: something we can't do anything about, even if it's like a stage four cancer and you're dying, well, inhabiting stage four cancer while you're dying is different than not inhabiting stage four cancer while you're dying.
2: Yes, yes, yeah.
0: Right? There may not be a cure, but there can be healing.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think the Sue Wen talks about that as the difference between death and perishing.
0: Ooh, the, wow. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Do you know what do you know what Sue Wen number that is? The difference between um, death and perishing. Holy smokes, Margaret Ross. I
2: can I could look it up.
0: <laughs> yeah, if you could look it up, I'd I'd like to have it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yes, that I mean that does make sense. Yeah, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I do want to come back and talk about treating things unconsciously. Yes, um, when it's time to treat unconsciously, and, and treating consciously when it's time to do that. But but before we do, talk to us a bit about rapport, and talk to us a bit about how it is that you seem to listen people into a into a place where you know what to do, and maybe they even know about what they need to do.
2: Oh, absolutely! I think we have phenomenal intelligence, innate intelligence. And it's just sometimes gets covered up by, again, our, our, our beliefs and thoughts. And when you start peeling away those layers, it, it's self-evident what one can do. It's really common sense, which is what I love about Chinese medicine, the basis in common sense mm. uh, is profound. Um, so as far as rapport, basically what we're trying to do is meet another where they are. So I can't, you know, if let's, uh, let me think of, i think of a patient. This is somebody who I just adore. I adore all my patients, but I especially adore this person. He's over 400 pounds. He has diabetes. He's had Um, kidney cancer. He loves sugar and he Mm. loves fatty foods. So, you know, the first time he comes in, I could look at his labs. I could could obviously see that there are things out of balance in his life from what he was telling me. And just visually looking at his complexion and, you know, his body mass. Um, And I could have said to him, Hey, you know what? You really need to change your diet that would be a great place to start. Well, if I don't have rapport with this person, I might as well say, could you fly to the moon tomorrow? Because that would really help you. It doesn't land and it won't stick. And it 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 may not make sense. Make sense and it might even shut down uh, whatever rapport we did have. So mm-hmm. the key to these rapport practices is how can I make myself more like you? And as I live more like you, I come to understand you in a different way, free of my judgments, perhaps free of some construct of what's good and bad. And let me just be you and see what that's like. So I'll give you an example of, of what you can do. This is something that I, I share with my students and have them practice. Uh, so if I talk really fast like this, and I I uh, really uh, I'm telling you my story. Uh, I can start to talk like that too. I mean, I'm not going to be uh, very obvious about it, but I might start to increase the rate at which I'm speaking. So I start to match your rate of speaking, and then maybe I'll start to speak a little bit faster. And at the end of my sentence. And what you might notice if you do that, if you start matching the, the speed with which a person talks or the volume with which they talk or the cadence with which they talk, they're going to start to relax.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: try it out <laughs> while you're there in Taiwan, you know, when you're going out to eat breakfast or just start to match the voice of your waiter
0: You know, it's funny you should mention that I, when I'm here in Taiwan, I kind of do that naturally because I'm trying to get my language down. And so I mimic people a lot. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's partly how I learn.
2: Yeah. So you get into rapport with them, you can start to learn from them better. You get in rapport with them, they open up to you more, they're willing to talk to you. So, uh, that's one simple thing that you can do.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm thinking of a couple of patients of mine, and and there's the, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, and every time he comes in, we just we just I mean, we 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 fall into this way of talking. We're like brothers, and it, it's always a delight to see this cat, right? Yeah, and I think it's because we're naturally. It's not that I'm trying to get into rapport with this with this guy. Yeah. But we just naturally fall into it, and we and we speak a kind of way, and there's a kind of language that we use. And there, and I found that there's other folks. Often what happens is I end up feeling like, oh, I don't really like this person. Or maybe, maybe you know, or, or if I'm having a bad day, you know, they don't like me. I'm feeling insecure. It doesn't matter which one. It occurs to me their way of speaking is I find I it's like walking on very uneven ground. Yeah. It's really, I just can't settle into the connection. And I hadn't thought about it as trying, well, bringing some mindfulness to, can I just let go of me, not completely, but enough to kind of be them in the way that they communicate.
2: Exactly. It's quite profound. And you can do the same with breathing. If they breathe shallowly or they breathe quickly or they breathe deeply or slowly, you can match your breathing rate and location Mm. with theirs. So while they're talking to you, you can breathe out because they're breathing out at the same time.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, That's really, that's, that's very powerful just to match someone's breathing.
0: Well, just to attend to somebody, just to attend to another person enough to notice how are they breathing?
2: Yes. Yeah. Blinking is another thing. If, you know, some people blink rapidly and frequently and others don't. So matching their blinking or if they, I'm Italian, I use my hands a lot when I talk. So if I'm with someone who uses their hands a lot, I feel really comfortable.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's like, oh, I I get you. There's a, there's a, there's a subconscious meeting of the minds there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And then. The other really powerful thing for building rapport is to listen to the words that your patient uses. You can even notice where they move their eyes when they're talking. Some of us look up a lot. Sometimes I look up so, so strongly that people will look where I'm looking because they think I'm seeing something. But it's it's really just the way I'm accessing thoughts in my mind. Some people look more side to side at the level of the ears. Other people look down. And so each of those ranges where you put your eyes, if you look up, it kind of belies that you're a very visual person. If you look more side to side level with your ears, it might indicate that you're more of an auditory learner or you experience the world most clearly through its sounds. And then if you look down with just with your eyeballs, maybe not with your head, that indicates you're kind of more of a somatic kinesthetic feeling. That's how you make your way through the world is through how you feel. So if you notice where their eyes are placed when they're talking, you can start using words that reflect that. So if i have a patient who's clearly very visually oriented i might use words like oh i see what you mean i can really visualize what you're saying i can imagine that in my mind
3: mm-hmm.
2: whereas if they're if they're more of um kinesthetic person then i'll match my language to that and say ah oh, dude i really feel you on that i i get it that's god i you know and i might I might put my hand on my body somewhere, like on my belly or on my chest, and just say, I really feel that. I can really sense that. How that might be. You know, and these are all just really small ways of communicating with their unconscious mind, getting out of your own ego and not holding fast to your world, but to really seep like water into theirs. And then, of course, Just like water, and something goes into solution in the water, and then the water can carry it. You know, it will can move that substance somewhere else because it's now in solution. And then the medicine that we have to give can really be received if it's appropriate for that person. They have a better chance of utilizing what we've got to give. Not that they have to and not that they will, but the chances are higher when you're in rapport. Mm -hmm.
3: Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the Governor Channel or the Sea of Yang, the Primal Reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth, but this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvellous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. How does this
0: inform a diagnosis or a treatment? You were saying that you don't particularly pay a lot of attention to the pulse. You, you get more out of the relationship. So how does how does this rapport and how does what comes out of it help you to go, oh, we're gonna we're gonna use this direction?
2: Yeah. So let's say um this is one of my favorites actually, and it's, it was what my acupuncturist did for me. She, she too has studied some neuro-linguistic programming and she's very astute that way. I had gone to her after, oh boy, um, it was after I had decided to stop teaching at the college. And that was a really hard decision for me because I, I, lo- I loved being with the students and I really loved the school. And I revere my teacher, and it was it was just hard to kind of let go of that community. so I wanted to see her, and I was telling her just kind of the ravages of <laughs> of that job, and how I had done it you know for 13 years and um she said, "You know what it sounds like? It sounds like you need to take a walk on the veranda." Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> which of course
2: is an acupuncture point <laughs> and so she needled that point for wait, me wait there's a
0: point called walk on the yeah. veranda
2: yeah yeah i have to look it up now because i can't remember it has a different name but that's the that's um that's one of the names that the five element school uses if i'm remembering it correctly
0: all right see if you see if you can dig it up because i want to put that in the show notes page
2: anyway when she said that Oh my gosh. I just took a big breath and the point had nothing to do with what was going on. It was just the name of it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one example of how, when I'm interviewing someone, the names of the points will come up to me in, in relationship to what they're talking about. So it, you know, if they're, if they're sounding really stuck in their life, I might do something like Shui Dao, you know, It might have anything to do with anything that relates to the uterus or the digestion or elimination, but that's the point that comes up from the conversation. Water path. Water path. So that's that's one example of how just the interview might start to pull up point. This will happen with herbs too, where as they're talking, the herbs just start coming to the surface like... Oh, that's really interesting. You know, um, all roads open. Do they really? Does it match the function and the indication of that herb? Maybe not, but it it relates to the the spirit of that herb. Or if there's, if it's becoming evident that they really don't trust themselves, and they really want to, they want to have more faith in themselves than kidney seven something that our kidney ate that builds that builds that trust for them so that's kind of an example of how a treatment might come up from just talking with them you know and often in that relationship you can you can start to i'm going to say guess at what the root cause of the issue might be
0: yeah i'd like to think of it as a hypothesis You know, I mean, we call it a diagnosis, right? Which sounds very, you know, sort of, oh, it's a diagnosis. It's medical. It's set in stone. But I really think of it more as a hypothesis. Here's what I think is happening. And it's partly my job to prove it right, but it's partly my job to prove it wrong.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know,
0: and keep that open stance of inquiry.
2: Yes. So the hypotheses can start to bubble up. And they do. I think they do for all of us. That's part of diagnosis: is to listen, using our interview skills, asking the ten questions, and then kind of going, "Okay, looks like the pattern is kind of coming together like this," or "Looks like the strategies this person has been using in their life has gotten them to this point," and maybe we. Start to introduce different strategies. oh man,
0: you know, yeah, this is this is one of the things that I find people get stuck on. I get stuck on it too, that we have something that has worked well in the past. It worked really well. Mm-hmm. It solved a problem. It saved our butt. it I mean, whatever it was, it worked. And we've used it up to the point where actually that strategy that helped us, is now part of the problem. It's actually not helpful at all, but because at one time it was, we've got got this link to it as being useful, except now it's not.
2: Right. Yeah. And that's what's so important too, about being able to, to connect to the subconscious mind, because you want to encourage that awareness to come up Mm -hmm. so that And you're not even saying, hey, you know what? That strategy kind of messing you up right now, don't you think? Where you just connect with them through rapport and you take that, to keep this analogy of the water, you take that water into that strategy and they look at it and go, oh, my gosh, I bet that's not helping me anymore. Mm -hmm. You didn't say anything. You just kind of said, oh, let's just go over here and check this out. We'll put a little flashlight over there and look at that. And, you know, maybe they'll see it. Maybe they won't, but if they do, they have that opportunity to change.
0: Yeah. And and, and it, to me, it seems so important that if anyone's going to see it, they're the ones that have to see it. Because if we see it, you know, and often we can, we're out, we're on the outside, right? Yes. If we see it and point it out, Sometimes, you know, I used to think that was a helpful thing. Oh, I've got this insight. This is going to help you. It's like, actually, no. It Now we're further away. <laughs> now we're sailing the great circle course around it instead of any kind of direction to it because it was them who needs to see it, not me. Right. This is where I think yeah. acupuncture is so wildly helpful at times because there can be something unconscious going on or there's maybe an insight I have that gives me a a thought of, Oh, you know, I, some acupuncture, you know, this point here or this treatment here might help to, you know, help with this situation. They don't need to have the insight. They need to have something connected up on the inside that at some point Mm -hmm. might come to, to a kind of fruition where they, they kind of get it. This is such, this is one of the things that's so powerful about, about acupuncture is that you you don't have, the patient doesn't have to like get it with their conscious mind. They can kind of grow into, oh, actually it's, I was mistaken. It's not like that. It's like this.
2: Yeah. And I, that is, that is the beauty of acupuncture. You know, I, earlier when we started this conversation, I was saying how my belief back when I started was, it has nothing to do with my technique or the point I pick. It's all about this relationship. But what you're saying, I think, is very true. You can just use acupuncture based on this very sophisticated system of medicine that we have, the strategies that we understand and then the methods of it. And by placing those needles something subconsciously starts to change in the patient. So it uh, has nothing to do necessarily with the relationship or anything that was brought to consciousness, to awareness, uh, through awareness. That's why this medicine is so cool. <laughs> that it it um, it can be from the outside in or the inside out, but it still works. I just happen to like from the outside in, like that water can seep in and then it can come back out and, you know, bring things up to consciousness so they can change. I'm definitely a champion of heal thyself. I don't, I'm not interested in having patients keep returning to me for treatments. And I make that very clear when they first come to see me that uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not what I like to do. I'd like to give them An opportunity to get a new view on themselves and then give them some tools, send them home and see how it goes. And then if they need to come back, they do. Uh, But that's just how I like to practice.
0: We'll be back in a moment with the second portion of this conversation. But first, here's the answer to the question that Toby from the Chinese Nutritional Strategies app posed at the beginning of the show.
3: Hi, Toby here again. I use the Chinese Nutritional Strategies app to answer the question, what food is known
0: as nature's Baihu Tong, white tiger decoction? The answer is watermelon, because like Baihu Tong, it clears heat, drains stomach fire, generates fluids, and alleviates thirst. The Chinese Nutritional Strategies app has information like this in its database of more than 300 common foods, along with their clinical indications, temperature, flavor, actions, seasonal recommendations, and differential diagnosis categories. The database is searchable by any of these criteria, and sorting through it allows the practitioner to compile a list of recommended foods and then share those recommendations via email or as a hard copy with the patient. More information is available at app.com. So we're taught, we've been talking about how we connect with people, which in some ways helps them connect with themselves. And then there's what we do with acupuncture, and because you can work from the inside out as well. And because we can work with emotional aspects of people through a very physical medicine and through a very physical intervention, right? If someone, if someone is a, a constant ruminator, we can help their digestion. That's probably going to help them. Right? If someone's yeah. got a really poor self-concept and they're and they're not good at drawing boundaries we can work with their metal elements these these things have an impact we don't necessarily know how it's going to impact people Mm -hmm. part partly the thing about practice that's interesting to me is to see what they do with with what's been sort of reactivated So we don't have to go at it necessarily directly in a conscious way. We can work with organ systems that have an influence on the emotions that in turn have an influence on the perception. Yes. And then the world becomes very, very different. One of the things that I've noticed in my practice is not always, but often enough, people will come in for a first treatment and they walk out and it's like, what the hell was that, <laughs> right? I mean, they walk; they're in a totally different state of mind. They, yeah. you know, something is really different, and so, you know, you ask them if they want to come back, and they say yes, yes, next week, please. And you do your second treatment, and then they come back for the third. And they go, you know, that second one really didn't do much.
2: Hmm. Yep. <laughs> That's what I call the ho-hum treatment.
0: Well, yeah. You've seen this. I've seen this. I suspect those of you that are listening to our conversation right now, you've seen this. And people go, oh, it, it didn't work as well. I'm curious to get your thoughts about this.
2: About the that second ho-hum treatment?
0: About about why they think it's a ho-hum treatment.
2: Yeah, well, that, that first experience of being touched from, you know, it could be from the outside in, if you have a a masterful practitioner who can really, on that first meeting, get in rapport and make that connection with you, and you start to realize things that you didn't realize before, and it's profound, or you feel inspired in a way that you haven't felt at all in all the other things you've tried to address your health concern, or you feel empowered, or you feel hopeful. And these are big things for patients who have seen doctor after doctor with no results, being frustrated and frightened about what they're experiencing. So that first touch can be so profound just to connect with someone in that way just to be given a new perspective a new possibility is huge and then of course the treatment if they're able to relax um, even just for a minute while they're on the table if they can have one good deep breath that they take all on their own spontaneously Mm -hmm. without thinking about it that can be huge for us even I mean we We live in a world where we travel a million miles an hour in our minds and we have a lot of external stimulation. So that moment of pause is profound and they go home with that and they might feel like kind of noodly after their treatment. They might be kind of spaced out. They go home, they sleep really well. Then they come back full of expectations (laughs) that they didn't have. Uh (laughs) They didn't have those Uh expectations the first time because they had no concept of what this medicine was going to offer them. So they come back in and they expect the same thing. So now for me, it's just a standard. When someone has completed their first treatment and they're sitting down and they're putting their shoes back on or... Uh, they're telling me what they experienced, I will say to them, this was a, this was a, a profound experience you just had. You might not have that the second time. And I tell them, I call it the ho-hum treatment, not to put any thoughts into their heads, because of course we can do that when they're in that very receptive, relaxed state. Mm. Um, but I do say to them, the next time you come, it may not be as profound. And that's because a door has opened and you'll have acclimated to the new environment. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it might not be so um, in your face, so to speak. And then I say, but don't be discouraged because the path, every step you take on this path is just going to keep unfolding something pretty beautiful to you. So, and then of course they have the second treatment. They come back and oftentimes they'll say, you were right. (laughs) Right. It was ho-hum, and I'm glad you told me because if you hadn't, I might not have come back. So uh, its I think it's helpful to be overt about that uh, since, it, like you say, it does happen. And as your listeners might be nodding their heads going, yeah, what, what is that? <laughs> That's what I think is going on. Yeah. The first time is just profoundly new and fresh.
0: Well, and I like the way that you talk about it. The first time it opens a door.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And you walk through the door, you're in a new environment. And and we so easily acclimate to yeah. our new environment. I often think about those first treatments where people really, you know, bang, something really happened. As they get a glimpse of where they can be. Mm-hmm. They get a glimpse of what's exactly. possible. Yes. Now you got to live your way into it.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. Right. And that, again... Is if you've established good rapport, they the chances are really good that they'll keep walking with you on that path, even though it's going to start to take work. It's not just Michael gave me an awesome treatment and now I'm a new person. You just open the door, and then they got to walk through and keep walking it. So uh, I really think these skills are pretty important to to help us walk together.
0: I really like what you have to say about this in terms of letting them know this time was like this, the second time probably won't. You know, it's it's so easy. I don't know what it is about us as human beings, but we have an experience and we think, oh yeah, if I do this again, I'm going to get the same experience. I mean, maybe this is nice. the basis <laughs> of what addiction is, right? I had this experience. I do this thing again. I'm going to get this, yeah. you know, incredible state, but I don't. Know, I, I yeah, remember hearing. Yeah, we know hearing, how that ends up. Yeah, we know how that ends <laughs> up. I, I remember hearing someone once say, "The biggest impediment to the experience of God is your previous experience with God." Right. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's the the Tao cannot be named. The moment you name it, it's not the Tao. It's not the Tao. Like, All right. Okay. Yeah. I guess I can't hold on to this.
0: Oh, it was so tasty. Please, please, please can I have another scoop?
2: <laughs> yeah. I have a patient who's been coming to see me uh, pr- since I started, Michael, since I moved back to North Carolina and started practice. So she's been with me 23 years, 24 years. And she'll come in and she'll say, I know I'm not supposed to ask you this because you're just going to say I... I, it doesn't work like that. But she'll say, Can you give me the exact same treatment you did last time? <laughs> say, it doesn't work like that.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And of course, if I did, she wouldn't she wouldn't necessarily feel the same thing because it's a new day. It's a new moment.
0: yeah, this is uh, this is one of the beauties and one of the frustrations of our of what we do. Right. Because, I mean, in some ways it would be so easy if we could just go, oh, yeah, well, here's that protocol and you just do that yes. and you get this. And conventional medicine is very much based on that. So people are they're kind of attuned to that. They're expecting that. Well, but, you you know, you did this last yeah. time. How come you don't do it this time?
2: Right. And, and just- Or you did, it, you did it last time and you did it this time, but it didn't have the same effect. What's what's up with that?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and I think to give people that glimpse of it's changing moment to moment, you're changing moment to moment. I I think it can be very frustrating for folks in some ways, because we we just want to know. But especially in situations where people are ill, they've got something going on, you know, enough so that they're coming to see an acupuncturist. There's often a lot of uncertainty anyway. And so being able to get a little bit cozy with uncertainty, I think it tends to be helpful.
2: Yes. And that too. You know, if you're in rapport with your patient, they will feel more secure mm. with you. Mm. So that when you are at what what's called pacing and then leading, when you're walking with them in familiar territory and then you say, "Hey, how about we go over there just for a moment and check it out?" That's a frightening moment. Like, huh, really, you want me to you want me to feel that? I don't know if I want to feel that
0: I came in here to avoid feeling that. Thank you very much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. Uh, there they'll go with you. They'll come with you and you can sit there and investigate the experience in that moment. And then if it's too much, you can just walk right back to the the same old path. And but something's changed and it's changed forever. And it may they may want to go back to that place that you you know, you may have encouraged them to go to a fresh new place.
3: Yeah.
0: I, I, I really like this yin-yang sensibility that you're talking about here, that that there's a place of security and and that is vital. And there's this place of unknown and uncertainty, also helpful, useful. Yes. And, and yes. to be able to have enough security so you can imbibe some uncertainty, right? And enough uncertainty so you can break your idea of what you think is going on so you can try something new.
2: Exactly. And if you're with someone who is listening and is genuinely wanting to live in your world without judging you, my God, that's, to me, that's the most powerful medicine.
0: God, I judge my patients all the time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think we do. That's I think that's part of the training that we get in school, too, is to – we kind of know what's right and wrong or what's good and bad. But, of course, the medicine tells us – Yeah, you
0: know, we're supposed to know right and wrong and good and bad. And and in some ways, people are looking for that. Tell me what to do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they get frustrated in my practice because I don't do that.
0: (laughs) You don't tell them nothing.
2: I know. I'll give them options and say what feels right to you. And, of course – many much of the time they can't they don't know they don't know what feels right to them, so you know then that's another part of the medicine is building that mindfulness to notice how does that feel inside which what what does your intuition tell you anyway that deep listening without judging and just letting somebody be themselves you get out of yourself you meet them where they are, and you have this chong you have this The three becomes the 10,000 things moment. It's great. I love practicing like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. I
0: I can hear that in your voice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, when we start acupuncture school and after we've practiced it for a few years, those, those ego tendencies can really come to the forefront. Like, I know what's best. I know the right path. If you do it like this, this is what's going to happen. And then of course, after you've practiced for a while, you realize that doesn't work at all.
0: <laughs> Not so much.
2: Not so much. Too many variables Mm-mm. and there's something beyond the structure of the medicine that's happening. So, that's the fun part. Is practicing for a long time and coming in and out of the mystery and the manifestation and back to the mystery and uh so rich.
0: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method, for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles thus the choice of needle becomes important the unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques these superior needles are made of uncoated japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge additionally Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, so you've been at this 25ish years. You sound as excited about it as when I knew you as a student.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love it.
0: What's kept what's what's kept you what's kept your interest alive? You know, there's there's a lot of talk in our profession these days about how people 5 years out from school, they're not practicing. There's a whole industry that's grown up around getting people kind of up and going with their practice. Mhm. Uh, yeah. My sense of it is if you can manage to keep it going for five years, you've got enough stability that you've got a shot at, you know, a longer unfoldment in being a medical practitioner, being a Chinese medicine practitioner. So I've become increasingly curious about not just what it takes to start a practice. I mean, again, there's lots of people that that have good advice for that. What does it take to sustain a practice? Mm. What does it take to have a practice go decades?
2: I think the key, Michael, and I'd love to hear your response to this too. I think the key for me was to keep digging deeper into myself. And of course, the Su Wen tells us that, the Ling Shu tells us that. You have to know yourself. I pulled something from Julia Measures. Did you ever know who, the, who Julia Measures was? is was? No, I don't. She was part of the um, TAI school in Maryland. She was a student of J.R. Worsley's in England. She was one of his top students. She came to the States and started teaching at TAI and they started this Sophia program. She had this to say that her preconditions for treatment. I, before I went to school, when I was hunting for a school, I went to a presentation that she and Diane Connolly and the TAI School was um, was giving at Nisa in Boston. So I got to visit Nisa, and then I also had to got to take this class from the Five Element Tradition. And she said, you know, you have to know your medicine. This is a precondition for treatment. You've got to know the 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 system of medicine that you are in. And then the second condition was insight into yourself. So. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's kept me going is that when I first started, and I again, I'd like to know this if this was true for you, I had studied five element acupuncture uh, while I was in school because I had already done all of my biomedicine in undergraduate, so I didn't have to take those classes at acupuncture school. And that freed me up to study outside of school you know, I'd studied with Kiko and Dr. Tan and um, Michael Adams and Stephen Birch and Stephen Brown. And, you know, the list just goes on with the the school environment in Seattle was so rich and so many people were coming through. So I had all these techniques and tools. My basket was overflowing with knowledge and what I could do. And then I moved to Hawaii, and then I moved back to North Carolina, and I got into practice, and it was slow, and I just kept remembering my teacher saying, give it five years before you make any judgment about practicing. I didn't advertise because I was in the rural South, and I had been warned that to talk about Chinese medicine sounded like satanic practice, You know that we have the five-star, and anyway, I kept very very much under the radar and patients trickled in, but I was very doubtful of myself. I felt like I didn't get it and I didn't know what I was doing and I shouldn't be doing this. I should be working at a bank. I (laughs) (laughs) seriously, I thought I had that thought for many years. And I went and studied in China because I felt so deficient that I took three months and David Lerner and I went and made our own internship in herbal medicine there at the hospital in Chengdu. Mm -hmm. I came back and I still felt so insecure. I didn't know what was happening. And um, it wasn't really till I started studying with Jeffrey Yuen that I really need to look at myself. It's not about it's not about my technique or my understanding as there's a lot of, there's a big mess inside of me (laughs) and that's, what's blocking me. So in that environment of someone saying to me, don't judge yourself, just let yourself unfold and look at yourself and don't be afraid. My gosh, it just, it opened me up and, I kept on wanting to drink from that fountain. It was just profound. And so as I practiced the medicine and as I worked with people and saw, I'm just like them. They're just like me. How can we help each other here? That just kept feeding me and growing. And it's still the case today. I, I love my practice. I love my patients. I'm grateful to each and every one of them. They've taught me so much. And we've really grown together, so that's what keeps me going. I just fall more and more in love with with us. I guess I could say it like that
0: yeah, I too was schooled in the Seattle area, so rich. lots of rich influence, yeah rich, oh my rich. God, so much yeah, I mean, fabulous and and the techniques are helpful, and the knowledge is helpful and and you know, I went to a school that was very long on internship. Right, they had us in clinic the first first year. we were in there for three hundred hours. Wow! So, yeah,
2: I didn't realize that.
0: <laughs> yeah, Seattle Institute. Dan yeah, and Paul. you're you're in clinic three hundred hours. <laughs> Dan and Paul. Yeah, you're in clinic three hundred hours, wow. watching people that have been doing it for ten years or more. Yeah. So beautiful from the get go. I've I've had this infusion of medicine. The medicine unfolds in relationship. You know, unfolds in the clinic. It unfolds in relationship. Um, it unfolds through doing it. And 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 yes, you got to know your stuff. You got to know your medicine. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes.
0: And you also have to be attentive to what's unfolding in front of you at this particular moment, at this particular moment, at this particular moment. I mean, I you know, I came from that kind of a background, but I'm the kind of person who likes to know stuff. I mean, I used to be in high tech yes. and work with computers and stuff. So, you know, I mean, there's something to know and there's something to do. And with medicine, there's also something to know and something to do, but there's also a space for some uncertainty and being able to sit with, well, what's actually here? How can I get a grasp of what's here before I actually start trying to do anything.
2: Yeah. We can
0: have our ideas about what's going on with someone, but that's more about us than about them. And it might be helpful to them in some ways, but then you end up in a a situation where now they're dependent on you and you're the person who's doing the fixing. Exactly. I get really uncomfortable these days when when people come in, they go, you fixed my XYZ. (laughs) mean it's nice right i mean there's a part of me that goes oh yeah you know oh yeah right i I got to shit down i fixed your xyz (laughs) but it but that doesn't help them and it especially doesn't help me yeah if i'm thinking i fixed their xyz because there is something that unfolded that changed i got to have a hand in it yes they're the ones who do the work yes and so part of what keeps me going is somehow getting through those years of, I got to fix things. I got to be the smart guy who fixes things. Exactly. And and, and and there's enough, and having had enough experience with that working to stay in the game, and enough experience of that failing to go, uh-huh. there's got to be more here than just that. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of my thought on it at this moment in time. We, should, we could maybe sit down again together in five years and see where we're right. at with
3: it. Yeah,
2: true. <laughs> true. So is that what keeps you going, Michael? That,
0: well, what the- keeps me going, that's a good question. I, well, first of all, I see it work and be helpful to people often enough that I feel like it's it's a worthwhile reason to get out of bed and do something yeah. in a day.
2: <laughs> yes.
0: Num- number one, it's help. I see it being helpful enough that, you know, I mean, if, if I didn't see it being helpful, I go open a coffee shop or something, right? Because that, that would be more helpful. But, but I see it be helpful enough. I'm continually surprised and amazed at the resources people actually have with inside themselves that they didn't know that they had, that I didn't know they had, that they didn't know they had. And through the relationship and connecting with them. Yes. Through the acupuncture, through whatever it is, through whatever dance it is we do together that we call Chinese medicine, they find stuff in themselves that's been laying there latent, Mm -hmm. that now has an avenue of expression, and how that's going to express, we don't know. And in being able to sit in a place with somebody and, and watching and getting to be a part of something coming out in a way that no one could know it, it was going to come out that's delightful and it's not because i did something i mean i get to help cultivate the relationship you know and, I, and and it's my job to put needles in certain places where i think it's going to be helpful but that something else comes through in a way that there's a bit less suffering there's there's more integration Something shifts. People don't need to come see me as much. It's a good way to spend the day. It's a, you know, I I can go to bed at the end of the day and go, that was a day well lived.
2: Well said. So that's
0: kind of what keeps me in. (laughs) it.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks for saying that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I've got, I think I've just got one or two more questions here. I could go on with you for hours like this. Maybe, Maybe we'll do a part two at some point. But I'm, I'm here in Taiwan. And I got some stuff I, gotta, I got to go attend to here in a little bit. So, so I've got a little bit of a time limit. You were talking about being able to listen without judgment. And, and I think I made a wise crack about, oh, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> or I judge my patients all the time or something like that. Because, I, you know, I do. We do. You know, as human beings, we do it all the time. Oh, sure. It's hard not to. Yes. You know, and, and we're taught to. And as medical practitioners, we're taught to have good judgment and discernment. So, you know, judgment is going to creep in. Yes. How to have that, but not let it get in the way. Mm-hmm. How, to, how to be discerning. How can we work with our judgment? So we, not that we get rid of it, but that it doesn't get in the way so much of us working with our patients.
2: Well, uh, I have a two-pronged approach to that. Because I am a very judgmental, critical person. That seems to be one of the- um,
0: It's one of your endearing qualities.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Talk to my family about that. Yeah. So one of the ways that I respond to that when I notice it coming up in clinic is that I will check in with myself. Like I'll say, so I'm going to give you my thought bubble here. I'll notice that I'm feeling judgmental which is I can feel that my chi rising so there's a sense mm. of superiority coming up I can I might have a thought like you got to be kidding me <laughs> <laughs> Are you not hearing <laughs> yourself here you know <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh So when I notice that when I notice that thought and I notice that feeling I stop right there. And what happens here, I might not be listening to the patient as they're talking anymore because I've gone internal to check out something inside myself. And I'll just say to myself, "You're judging, aren't you?" Oh yeah. You're critiquing something. And I don't I don't give myself a guilt trip or anything like that. It's just, "Oh, oh, here I am judging again. Interesting." Okay.
0: There it is again my old friend of
2: course the minute you notice it it's gone and then I can listen again so that's one way that I respond to my judgment the other way I respond to my judgment is <laughs> I might hear myself say to myself oh really really you think you've done this better really is that really true Margot? have you really done life better than this person Nope. Mm. (laughs) Nope. We're all in the same boat. So I say that a lot. We're all in the same boat. Sometimes I say it out loud. It's something that I once heard the Dalai Lama say, we're all in the same boat. And of course, when he said it, I was like, you're not in my boat, dude. (laughs) You're definitely in a different boat. But of course, the way he his transmission, his, uh, uh, his nod, I got it. Like, oh, we are. We're all in the same boat. So those are two ways that I deal with judgment that comes up in practice is bringing some mindfulness to it or just really asking myself, really, really, you want to get superior here? <laughs> I think you live in a glass house, my dear. <laughs>
0: uh-huh, yeah, we, we kind of know how that's probably going to go. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, what do you do?
0: Oh, man. Oh, God. You always do this. It's like, okay, now, Michael Max, I'm asking you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you're the celebrity on the show.
0: (laughs) No, you're the celebrity. I just have the show, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, you wrote a book. I haven't done that yet, but uh, it's coming. I did
0: not write a book. No, I did not write a book. I translated a book. I did not write a book. Writing a book is a whole different kettle of fish.
2: Well, you are writing a book, so.
0: I'm... Working on it, but <laughs> it's a whole kettle of fish, it's a different kettle of fish. Holy crap. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: Very true. How do I do it? Yes, how do you I'm, do
0: it? Wow. Let me think here. You were saying something about, really, you don't see that? Mm-hmm. And, and I see this with my patients all the time. They'll say something, and and it floors me. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> if they could just hear what I heard, yeah. problem is solved, right? But often the problem is that they can't hear it. Sometimes I will try to get them to hear it. That's usually not so helpful. <laughs> I've tried that. It's like it's like it's like here it is, it's so clear. If you could just hear what you just said, and I'll try reflecting it back to them. And sometimes they'll get it, but but usually not. Yeah. Um. So I just have to sit there frustrated. <laughs> I hadn't thought about looking at that and going, "Oh, can't you hear that?" And taking that as an invitation for myself just to go, "Oh, okay, there's something here." it's not yet able to be inhabited. Maybe I should just get a little curious about it. Or how does this fit in? How does this fit in with how I think about how emotions work in organ systems? And, and where can I go? You know, is there like a Zong Fu I can have a little conversation with? Ah. Because if I can have a little conversation with the Zong Fu, the Zong Fu will have a conversation with the patient. Yeah. Yeah, see. So I'll, I'll think about it like that.
2: Well, that's really using this immense, incredible medicine. Like you just, you just keep turning to it and putting it into practice, just like what you just described. There's, you can hang your hat on so many things in this medicine and feel like, yep, that's a good place to put my hat.
0: And, and I think there is this essential part of who the practitioner is, not in an egoic way. But I mean, who we are at our own tender edge. And if I can somehow be there at my tender edge without making the patient the therapist, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but just there at my own tender edge, being able to hold my own tender edge, it sometimes shifts the feeling in the room and sometimes it shifts something in the patient. But at least I know that I'm at it. At, at a tender point. Yes. I need to tread cautiously with myself. It reminds me to tread cautiously and with care with my patient. And then again, bring it back to, and and how do I use all this information to translate into where a needle's going to go that I think will be of benefit.
2: Yeah. And that tenderness that you speak of, you know, when you when we as the practitioner allow ourselves to enter that tenderness that space of vulnerability then we give we give permission for them to too and again if we're yeah. in good rapport they will and that then the shame the self-loathing the guilt whatever it is that has kind of been operating under the scene under the cover for so long that's that's led them to this point now, they can start to look at that and and share that vulnerability, share that whatever it is, self-hatred or
0: whatever that whatever that blockage is. Whatever that block in the she is, yeah.
2: And then the knot is already unraveling. You didn't do anything. It's just through your presence, you were the needle. You know, through your presence you you provided An opportunity for change.
0: Well, and this this brings us back full circle to what you were talking about earlier with some of the classics looking at the Suen, Da Te Ching, these things, Mm -hmm. where it talks about how we are with ourselves. Yes. In the process of being with a needle, being with a patient. Yep. Yep.
2: Oh my gosh, that is repeated over and over in those texts. It (laughs) is really I, I it's there's those texts, those classics are shouting at us. Who are you? Who are you? That's the key. Like, who am I? And if I can, if I can show up authentically, then maybe this person that I'm in rapport with, maybe they can too.
0: Mm. Well, my friend...
2: I'm sorry we have such boring conversations.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll let the listeners be the the judge of that one. (laughs) You know, I think that's, I think this is just a good place to put a bookmark in it for today. And we can, we can maybe pick up uh, another time and noodle on some of this stuff.
2: Yeah. Or something else. We could talk about um, my really good meat sauce for pasta. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay. Well, since you brought it up, (laughs) I I think you're just going to have to send me like, you know, a PDF of it and I'll put it on the show notes page for people.
2: Okay. And I'm also going to um, circle back on the the death and perishing and a walk on the veranda. And you need my sugo di carne.
0: Sugo di carne.
2: Di carne. Carne recipe. Yes.
0: Okay. Recipe. All right. Roach <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend.
2: Thank you, Michael. Thanks for
0: listening to It's Geological. always a delight. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that,